All right, friends. Patrick, Jason, Davida, good to see you all. Um, welcome, welcome. Um, Jason, you were here last week, right? Yeah? Patrick, you were not, right? But welcome, anyway, good. Um, so let me just get a, get a quick recap of some things from last week. What do you remember from last week that we can launch off of? Add intra, add extra, good. So we, that's where we left off, right? We, we discussed the fact that when we think about the glory of God, the Bible refers to God's glory in at least two ways, right? God's glory in his being, and then God's glory in his works. God's glory in terms of who he is, in other words, and then God's glory in terms of what he's done. So God's being refers to ontology. Ontology just refers there. This is on your second page of session one still. Um, if we if we go through only just half of session two, that's okay because the last half of session two would carry into session three really nicely. Um, so remember last week we talked about God's glory in terms of God's being and God's works. Ontology just refers to the study of being. Um, so 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 if you're studying ontology, you're studying about what a thing is, the thingness of a thing, the essence of something. All right, um, and then God's economy just refers to God's works. These are just theological terms that I'm trying to retrieve for us. Remember last week, I talked a lot about retrieval. The fact that the church had lost a lot of its theological terminology and theological heritage and tradition, that a lot of what we're trying to do at CCC is retrieve the church's heritage uh, about how it, it has talked about God for centuries. And we've forgotten about that. I used the analogy of... Um, um, the church today being in a post-apocalyptic era, right? Remember in post-apocalyptic movies, for those of you who are not here, um, the way to go forward is to recover the technology of the past, right? So Will Smith in I Am Legend, he's fighting off zombies, and what does he do? He's trying to find batteries from the subways, right? Because they don't make batteries anymore. He can't just buy batteries, but he's trying to retrieve the technology of the past has been long gone because of the apocalypse, right? And in a lot of ways, the church is living in that age today. The church is living in an age where we have, because of the Enlightenment, forgotten our theological heritage, forgotten our theological tradition. And what we're trying to do is retrieve back a lot of the church's language about how we've talked about God for centuries. So why am I introducing all these terms again? These terms are just useful ways of summarizing what the Bible teaches. And in fact, these terms have been proven useful to the church for many, 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 many years, centuries, right? And church theologians, church pastors, um, Christians everywhere would have had to learn these terminologies even if they went through universities. We talked a lot about that last week. And that's why we're reintroducing these terms like ontology, like economy, of, uh, of God's economy, God's ontology, but also things like ad intra, ad extra. Okay, so... That's where we left off last week. So God's glory is in terms of his being, right? Ontology. And then also God's works, what he's done for us in creation, which is economy, which is something that God had freely chosen to do. God's being is self-contained, but in him being self-contained, even he was all-sufficient from the very beginning, he actually chose to create, and he chose to relate with creatures, even though he didn't have to. It's not as if God was lonely. 
It's not as if God wasn't loved before. He had already had fully, he was fully loved, he was fully happy, fully blessed, as the old theologians call it, in of himself. But then he chose to create, he chose to work. He freely chose to do that so that he might have creatures and have a relationship with creatures. So then we talked about the distinction between talk about God ad intra and then talk about God ad extra. These are Latin terms that, again, we're trying to retrieve. When we're thinking about God's life in himself, we're thinking about things ad intra or with, ref- with reference to the inside of God, with reference to God's life without creation. God in and of himself, right? The essential being of God. God would still be love without creation. God would still be holy without creation. And then when we refer to anything that God does outside of him, these are called ad extra. Extra just refers to God's works to that which is outside of him, okay? That's all those two terms mean. And again, we're trying to retrieve these things. And then you're going to see how these are incredibly important to keep in mind and incredibly important for us to distinguish at all times because um, there are things that are proper to God and to God's inner life only. And then there are things that are proper to God to that which is in relation to something outside of God only. And we refer to Augustine's text here in Augustine on the Trinity about how all of theology, in a sense, is trying to grasp the relationship between that which is eternal to that which is contingent, to that which is inside God, to that which is outside God. So remember, Augustine said this, it is difficult to contemplate and have full knowledge of God's substance. Think about that as ad intra. Which without any change in itself makes things that change. And without any passage of time in itself creates things that exist in time. And that's where we're going to camp on most of today. That's where we're going. And let me then, in just survey form, we could have spent more time in this, go through all of the biblical texts that refer to God's oneness and threeness before we refer to God's simplicity for today. Okay? So, when we think about the Christian doctrine of God, we have to take a look at all the biblical data. And what I'm about to say about God's simplicity today, God's triune being and God's knowledge of himself today, has to stand on these biblical texts. And these are just some of the biblical data that we, we take for granted as we, as we are in this course, okay? We believe in Christian theology that God is one. And here are some biblical texts that show that the Bible reveals the oneness of God, Okay? Look at Exodus 8.10. Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Or Deuteronomy 6.4. Hey, Karen, welcome. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, that the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6.4 is considered as a summary statement of all of Old Testament theology about the oneness of God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And when we refer to the simplicity of God later, the simplicity of God just refers to the absolute oneness of God. Okay, we're going to talk about simplicity later. Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Christian theology does not believe in three gods. Okay. He is God, there's no other. I am God, and there is none like me. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Again, even in reference to the work of Christ, it does not mean that Christ is one God and then the God the Father is another God, but rather there's only one God and then there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. James 2.19 talks about what the demons believe. 
you believe that God is one, you do well. In other words, you believe in Deuteronomy 6.4, right? That God is one, you do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. So demons have a proper theology of the oneness of God. So those survey of biblical texts about God oneness should be very uncontroversial and very not new to us, right? I don't have to discuss that for too long. But I want us to consider not only the oneness of God in the Old Testament, but also the glimmers of God's threeness, even from the Old Testament. Some people would say that, you know, God, it's not clear that God is triune in the Old Testament. It's really clear that God is Trinitarian in the, in the New Testament. There's some truth to that. But I want us to see even glimmers of God's Trinitarian being, God's triunity, even from the Old Testament. Look at what it says in the first opening verses of Genesis. This is in page three of session one notes still. We're going to go through this pretty quickly as well. It says in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. But then look at what it says here. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So somehow, even in the very opening verses of the Bible, you see this oneness of God, but then you also see this distinctness in God. There's somehow there's God, and then at the same time, this Spirit of God. What is the Spirit of God? We don't really know yet. But then in Genesis 1.26, it says, when God made man, and God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Notice the plurals there. God said, so that's singular, third person singular, but it says, let us make man. So who is he referring to there? In our image, after our likeness. So there's that singularity and plurality, even when in reference to man. And it's interesting if you think about how God created Adam, and then God said to Adam, it is not good for man to be alone. And then he created a woman, right? So somehow there's always been plurality in God, and, and God had always designed man to have a plural relationship with someone else. So somehow plurality in the making of male and female reflects God's triune being, right? Or making man in our likeness. I think that's what it's referring to in Genesis 1, 26. And then in Genesis 6, 3, you have another opaque uh, reference to the Holy Spirit. It says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. So, there's the spirit of God that dwells with creation and dwells with man. We're going to talk about that more in the retreat next week. But even more interesting is in the book of Proverbs, in this long passage, let me just read some parts of it here. In Proverbs 8, 22-34, there's this understanding of the wisdom of God that somehow was always been with God, but distinct from God, right? This is right after Genesis 6-3 in your notes, the long passage right below it. So in, in, in this passage, just notice the fact that God is talking about someone who's always been with him, but someone distinct from him at the same time. Look at this. The Lord, presumably God, possessed me at the beginning of his work. So even at the be very beginning, this me in Proverbs 8 was talked about. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. So there's this something that is with God even before the beginning of creation. 
When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of its dust of the, of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, there I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting on the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting besides my doors. For whoever finds me, finds life. Notice that? And obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. So whoever this wisdom of God is in Proverbs 8, it's definitely not Solomon, right? It's not the author of the book, right? This is someone who has always been there before creation, who through whom all creatures would find life, and in fact was the one that God, the Lord, delighted in from the very beginning. I hope that sounds familiar to you because we've been going through the Gospel of John on Sundays. And whoever looks at him finds life. Whoever ignores him is, gets death instead. So there's this suggestive, mysterious wisdom of God in Proverbs chapter 8, which implies again that God was one, but at the same time never, in a sense, alone, right? So even in the Old Testament, you see these glimmers of what I think is the Trinity. But it only gets to, only when we get to the New Testament where it gets really, really, really clear. Look at John 1, 1 to 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. It's almost as if John is taking exactly the themes of Proverbs chapter 8. Remember what the Word of God means in the Gospel of John, right? The Word of God is the Logos of God, the wisdom of God, literally. So somehow John is also saying, in the beginning was the Word, or the wisdom of God here, or the Logos of God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he was with God, but at the same time, the same with God, right? There is identity was God, but at the same time, plurality with God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Creation was made through this divine word. And without him was not anything that was made. So whatever this word of God is, he's with God, but distinct from God, but not created. Because everything that was made, everything that was created actually came from him. And in John 10.30, after we saw that this word became flesh, Jesus is explicit. He says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. There's no distinction between the two, so to speak. But at the same time, there is distinction. And Paul, reflecting upon Christ, says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So notice the emphasis on the distinction. But now there's equality too. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Or Hebrews 1 verse 3. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God. This is talking about the Son of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice there in Hebrews 1 verse 3, this one verse, you see both ontology and at the same time economy. You see God's being ad intra. Look at this. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The very character of his being, right? Exact imprint of his nature. That's all his being, ontology. But then he upholds the universe by the power of his, the word of his power. That's economy, his works. That's creation, preservation. And then after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Also economy, ad extra. So you see this interplay. Every time it talks about the glory of God, there's always this interplay of what's going on ad intra, ontology, the being of God, ad extra, economy, the works of God. And then you also see the Holy Spirit's being pretty clearly too in 1 Corinthians 2, where it talks about how the only one that could really know God himself is the Spirit. Look at 1 Corinthians 2.11. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? So there's an analogy, right? What, what, what is Paul saying here? Who among you could really know yourself unless you're you, right? I might know Ronald, but I don't know what's going on in his head right now. He might be thinking about the latest season of Silicon Valley for all I know, right? So I, I, I know him. I know that he's a member of CC, whatever. I know all these things about him, but nobody knows yourself the way you know yourself the way your internal consciousness works, right? So that's what Paul's referring to here as the spirit of man within him, right? Notice that. In the same way, so he's making an analogy. No one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So notice, even though the spirit of God is distinct from God, so that you can refer to him as the spirit of God, but at the same time, he knows God the way God knows himself, right? Notice that analogy there. So the Spirit of God is distinct from God, but the same with him himself, okay? So the Spirit of God, again, is not some force. He is not the, the mere power of God that you can tap into, right? The Spirit of God is personal. He is actually one with God and knows the thoughts of God himself. You see that? That has huge implications. I hope you're coming to the retreat and we're going to cover a lot of stuff like this. And then and the notice in 1 Corinthians 3.16, the unity and distinction too between God. So, so he says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, so you belong to God? How do you know you belong to this one God? God's spirit lives in you. So notice it's, it's in a sense, right? And I want to be careful about this. In a sense, God's spirit lives in you and not God the Father. But you have communion with God the Father precisely because it's the Spirit of God that lives in you. And this is, this is going to start to become a little bit mysterious, okay? When you say, for example, let me just side note here. When you say, for example, that on the cross, God died. Is that, is that a true statement? On the cross, God died. It's a true statement. All right, uh, this is not a trick question. It's a true statement, okay? On the cross, God, God died, okay? Now, what if I said, on the cross, the Spirit died? 
you're like shaking your head, right? Why? But I thought the spirit was God. There's distinction, right? So, so somehow you, you can say that on the cross, God died, but at the same time, you have to say it's God the Son who died, right? And because it's God the Son, by virtue of it, the Son being identical to God, you can say God died. But you can't reverse it and say, you know, in the cross, the Spirit died because God died. You see, you've got to move from the person to God and not God to the other person. You can't say the Father died, right? Oh, wow. Okay. But, but, but notice, but there's, there's something about the mystery of the Trinity here. And, and, and the church, actually, we could spend eight more weeks on this, but I, I can't. But, but I, want, I just want us to show the logic of the Trinity is that by virtue of the work of each person of the Trinity, you can move from person to the divinity of the Trinity. So when you say God the Son died on the cross, you can say God died on the cross. Person to essence. You notice that? But you can't move from essence to persons. So you can't say God died on the cross, therefore the Father died on the cross. You notice, you notice what I did there? I moved from person to essence. So, so okay, notice, there's, there's, this is just a side note, and I don't want to get lost in this because I could spend a long time on this, but I just want us to, to get the logic of these biblical texts and the logic of proper Christian orthodoxy. Remember retrieval, okay? This is something that we just got to retrain our brains to think about. You can move from uh, the person, the, Man, this is a bad pen. The work of the person. And then by virtue of the attributes or the works of the person, infer things about the essence of God. Because there is oneness between the two, right? There is, there is equality within the persons because they share in the divine essence. But then at the same time, distinctions within the two, okay? So you can say, the son, because the Son of God, let's just say talk about the Son of God. The, the, son, the sonship, okay, let's, I'm going to put it there. You can say that the Son of God died on the cross. By virtue of the person of the Son of God dying on the cross, you can say God died on the cross. Notice the logic of the, tr- the old theologians call this the Trinitarian grammar. You've got to just work with the rules of the grammars of speech. You can say the Son of God died on the cross, therefore God died on the cross, okay? But notice you can't flip that. You can't go from the essence of God to some work and then invoke all the three persons. So you can't say, let's say, God died on the cross, and then therefore God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit died on the cross. Because it's technically, right, and this is not just for technical reasons, it's actually very important to to keep this in mind. It's not the Spirit who died on the cross. It's not the Father who died on the cross. Right? Or else everything just kind of blows up, right? (laughs) If if you say that the Father died on the cross, then suddenly the, the, the logic of the Scriptures 
no longer make sense. Because if it's the father who died on the cross, whose wrath was he trying to satisfy? The son's wrath? That, that, that would mess up the order of the Trinity, you see? That, that starts to mess things up, right? And then in, this, in another sense, right, uh, let, let's talk about this in, in, a, in, a, in a different work of God, okay? Let me, let me just get this across so that we, we get how important this is maybe, okay? Let's talk about the Holy Spirit this time. And let's talk about prayer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw the hands there, okay? <laughs> Praying hands <laughs> from, from, from WhatsApp, okay? So you're praying. You're lifting your hands, okay? You're praying because the Holy Spirit dwells within you. You have access to God, right? So you can move from the Spirit of God that says He's praying within you. And then therefore, you can say you are, you, God is within you so that you can pray. And then you can pray to the Father. Notice that, right? But now, can I move, therefore, to say because God is in you. And let's just put the hands there instead. This time it's the Simpsons hands, four fingers. But you can't say, because God is within you, praying within you, that the Father is the one praying within you. Because if it's the Father praying within you, who are you praying to? The Spirit? You see, there's, there's something about the ordering within the Trinity that has to condition the works of the Trinity. And you got to move from persons to essences rather than the other way around. Or else you're just going to run into hubris. You know, your whole Christian life is going to be messed up just because you're getting some of these orders. Right. I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to say is you are already kind of presupposing these things. I'm just trying to make them explicit for you, right? There's a sense in which you already knew, I didn't have to tell you, that you prayed in the Spirit to the Father because of the work of the Son. Notice that there is... There is sense in that ordering, right? The Spirit's work is to point you to the Father and the Son. You, you notice that? And, and there's, 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 there's a proper sense in which you, you, you know that it was the Son of God who died for you because the Father's wrath had to be satisfied. You knew that too, right? But, but why did you... So, so these are just distinctions and old terminologies that actually make explicit and guard the very things you take for granted. Does that make sense? Okay. Just, so just notice that, that, that actually the Bible talks in that way too. Notice, notice you see this ordering here. 1 Corinthians 8.6. This is, this is probably the clearest statement where you find this ordering within the Trinity, but at the same time the oneness of the Trinity. Okay. Look at 1 Corinthians 8.6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. So from the Father, for the Father. And one Lord, Jesus Christ. So, so there's one God and one Lord. There's not two Lords here, right? Through whom. Notice the distinction of the, 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 the prepositions. It is God from whom all things but God through whom, Jesus Christ, right? So fromness is from the Father and throughness is from the Son or the Logos are all things and through whom we exist. So notice the Apostle Paul, even though he's very much grounding 
your existence on Christ and the Father, notice he makes a distinction in terms of the prepositions that he uses. Fromness and forness is to the Father, but throughness is to Jesus Christ. You see the distinctions there? 1 Corinthians 8, 6. So it's almost, so there, there's a sense in which your existence is properly from the Father and not from the Son. But it's through the Son. It's God, God created through His wisdom, through the Word of God, right? He spoke and there you came to be. It's through. The Son of God was somehow the instrument of God's creation. God the Father spoke through the Word of God and there you were, right? So you can't reverse that and say, God the Son through the Father created you. You see, you see the language of Paul there? So I'm not just making these little nice distinctions. This is not just a nice little logical game, okay? This is, this is something that I think is explicit in the Bible. Let me pause there and just, just see where you guys are at. Anytime you feel there's something confusing or you're lost, it's okay, we can slow down. I always put more material than there's it's possible to cover, but it's okay. Better more material than lack of material. Any questions on that? No? Everything is crystal clear? Or everything is just super unclear that we've got to just pause? Karen, yes? Yeah, please. There's order, yes. Good. That's a good question. So Karen's question, Karen's question is that given the fact that there's an ordering within the Trinity, does that mean that God the Father is the first or, or prime mover, the most powerful, and then the Son and the Spirit are lower than him? And given the oneness of God, we would have to say no. There is an ordering in the works of God, but at the same time, there's no subordination, if you could put it that way. There's ordering and no subordination. And even there, the old church fathers made this sort of distinction very, very clearly. Um, if you look at the Nicene Creed, for example, um, which sadly I don't have here, I should, probably should have, but the Nicene Creed, which is the very first creed that talked about the Trinity, it's, it talked about the Son of God, right? Son of God, light of God. And then it made very clear, not created, uh, not distinct, not under. It, it made all those clear negations, but it, rather it says, light of God, a very God, God of God himself, equal with God, in substance with God. But yet at the same time, there is an ordering of works. So somehow there's unity in diversity and equality within the unity. I hope you're, you're seeing a lot of themes in human nature that see that too, okay? So elders and members, you're going to be very tempted, especially in a hierarchical culture, to say elders, therefore, higher than members. No, we don't, we don't believe that. Or boss, employee, we share a common human nature, right? Therefore, there's equality between boss and employee. But these are imperfect analogies because you can't say either that the father is the boss of the son. You can't say that, right? But somehow in the Trinity, there is real distinctions, but no divisions. 
order but no subordination. Let me just write that down maybe. Distinction without um, division. Order without subordination. These are two rules that the church fathers and up until, uh, up until today are just rules of Christian orthodoxy, especially when we talk about the Trinity. Distinction without division, order without subordination. All right. I know, I know this, 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 this might seem like it's a little bit heady right now, and it kind of is, but, but we're talking about the deep things of God here. So we got to, it, it requires the most attentive and most precise of language. So let me just cover this last text here from B.B. Warfield that talks about the relationship between the Old and New Testaments. Notice what we just did. We surveyed the Old Testament. We surveyed the New Testament with regard to the oneness and the threeness of God. Okay, And we did see a clarity in the New Testament. Now, some people, therefore, are tempted to say um, God was one in the Old Testament and then God became three in the New Testament. There's, somehow there's a development in God. Okay, And I want to resist that kind of thinking. There was no development in God. It wasn't as if God was one and then he became three. But rather, it was more revealed slowly, progressively, that God was one and three from the very beginning. Okay, does that make sense? Look at what B.B. Warfield said. He's a 19th, 20th century Princeton theologian. He says, The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings in, brings out into clear view much of what is in it, but was only dimly or not at all perceived before. The mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament, but the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament's revelation, and here and there almost comes into the view. Thus the Old Testament revelation of God is not corrected by the fuller revelation which follows it, namely the New Testament, but is only perfected, extended, and enlarged. Okay, so notice what is the analogy that he's trying to talk about there with regard to the Old and New Testaments in relation to revealing the Trinity. He's talking about the Old Testament being like a room, but dimly lit. And the New Testament simply creates, creates more light into the room. The New Testament doesn't put anything new into the room. Just as when you came in here, you might be groping at the chairs, so you're not sure how many chairs there were, right? In the Old Testament, you're kind of groping in the dark about the threeness of God. And only in the New Testament is it greater revealed that God was fully one and fully three at the same time. So the distinction between the Old and New Testaments is not a movement from one God to three God, but rather um, a progressive revelation. God was progressively revealed to be both one and three. Does that make sense? Okay. So, so much then for session one stuff. Questions on that? You guys okay? Okay. Keep a note of the time here. Let me, let me go at this for about 15 minutes and then we'll take a, a break, all right?
So in session two, we're going to talk about more about what that oneness of God means and what it looks like. Okay. Um, we saw that there was distinction without division. Why is it so important for us to keep distinction without division? Well, because we don't believe in three gods. And there's something going to be really incredible if you think about the simplicity of God. For some of you who were here for apologetics cohort, some of this will be reviewed. But for those of you who weren't here for apologetics cohort or were never here for some portions of membership class, this will not be reviewed. This will be completely new. So, um, but, but we have to cover this again if we want to get to the knowledge of God, okay? So we're going we're gonna to think a little bit more about the simplicity of God. Again, we're retrieving an old word, the simplicity of God. What does it mean that God is simple? For those of you who know this term, what does the simplicity of God mean? No parts, no distinctions, right? I mean, sorry, no parts, no composition. There are distinctions, sorry. No parts, no composition. The simplicity of God means that God is an absolutely one thing. You can't divide him into other parts. He's simple in that way. In other words, he's fully and completely one and indivisible. So the simplicity of God doesn't mean that God is easy to understand. It doesn't mean that God is stupid, like he's a simple person. Um, it doesn't mean that um, God is, uh, you know, an easygoing guy. He's a simple guy, right? No, these are all human ways that we talk about simplicity, but rather... God himself alone is simple in the sense where he's completely and totally one and no parts are within him. And only God and all beings is one, right? Only God within all beings is one. In other words, what it is that separates creatures from God is that God is simple and we are not. We are composed of parts. And I, I want to I camp on this a little bit before we get to the biblical text. God is completely and fully one, but we, on the other hand, are composed of parts. Notice in us, for example, there's a distinction between things that are uh, physical. This is the easiest example, right? Physical, right? You, lose, you can lose a finger. Your finger is not your head. Your eyes are not your, your limbs. You see what I mean? There are physical parts to you. And you are divisible by those physical parts, right? You can lose a limb, so you are divided into two, so to speak, right? Not only that, there, your, your knowledge is also in parts. Right now, we are learning together, right? You're, you're, what are you doing when you're learning? You're growing. You're growing intellectually, you're growing in wisdom. What does growing intellectually at least involve? You're adding knowledge to yourself. Whereas before, in your mind, you had a few propositions about God, and now you're adding into yourself that God is simple. That's a new category for you. You see what I mean? So learning at least involves taking on new parts to yourself. Physically, you also grew, right? Um, so I don't grow anymore, but we used to. <laughs> we used to grow. We used to grow from about like wee high to this, this, this tall, right? So we, we take on parts. We lose parts all the time. When we grow older, we're going to shrink in height. So, and we also forget things, right? When we forget things, we're losing memory. So memory, this, is, this, this could get really intricate and really interesting very quickly, but memory is also parts of you, right? So when you lose memory, you're losing parts of yourself. When you take on new memories, you, you take on new things of yourself. So experience, when you talk about in your CV, is working experience. 
Some people have more experience than others. Notice the wording of more or less. More or less. And, and things that are accidental to you, like the shirt that you're wearing or, or your fingernails, right? And things that are essential to you, like your identity, your history, that make you who you are, right? Notice that every single person is made of parts. Whether in terms of growth, intellectually, memory, physically, you're always composed of parts, okay? Relationships are always also... Relations are kind of partitive relationships too with regard to human beings. You can lose a relationship with someone. You can gain a relationship with someone. Notice all of your life is always made up of compartments, divisions, growth, changes, imperfections, perfections, changes, and, and, and developments, right? Physical things, anything in creation. Anything in creation is always made of parts. That's all the theologians mean by that. Only God is a simple being. Only God is a simple being. What does that mean? It means that God doesn't grow, right? We can all agree on that. God doesn't grow. God doesn't change. Why? Because if he grows, that means he's taking on new information or he's becoming or he's developing. But if you're perfect, that's why the simplicity of God is a corollary of the perfection of God. If you're a perfect being, perfect beings don't grow. They don't develop. Because if they develop, that means they weren't perfect before, right? And notice how when, once you start talking in that way, all of the attributes of God come together. God is simple also because he's eternal. He's not within time. It's not as if he grows with, as time extends, right? With new memories and stuff like that. And he doesn't change because he's also eternal and because he's simple. Changing is a taking away of parts, developing of parts, or taking on new parts, right? He doesn't change. He doesn't grow. He's eternal. He's infinite. So suddenly, when you start to talk about the simplicity of God, you start to realize all of the attributes of God are connected. Not only connected, but one thing. Simple. God's eternality entails his unchangeability or immutability, right? He's not mutable. He's not changeable. God's unchangeability is, correlate, is corollary with his what? Um, simplicity. Because simplicity means he doesn't have any parts. He doesn't take on or lose any parts, right? God being outside of time is part of that. And then God being not spatially extended. It's not as if a part of God is sitting with Chen, another part of God sitting with uh, Emily, right? Or Michelle, right? These, these are all... God, there's not as... Part of, you, part of God is there, part of God is there, part of God is in Nicaragua, right? You can't divide God up. Somehow, the simplicity of God means he's fully everywhere, in all times and all places. So, so notice, you might start to make distinctions because we're, we're finite. God is, you know, timeless. God is omnipresent. God is eternal. God is unchangeable. These are distinct attributes that we have to make. But when we make distinctions, it's not because the distinctions are inherent within God. But we make distinctions simply because we have to talk in that way. You notice that as well? So notice how all of the attributes of God are connected in God and are really just one thing. And the only, the only reason why we really make distinctions, most of the time anyway, is because we are creatures who need to make distinctions. We, we reason 
discursively, step by step, right? We make inferences from one proposition to another. Um, we don't just know things intuitively and by what the old theologians called simple knowledge, like God's is, which is going to have a lot of implications. Okay, everybody on board with me with that explanation so far? This, that explanation is not just a philosophical picture. It's not just a philosophical deduction, okay? Take that explanation and then reread the name of God. In Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Okay, some of you, this is review again, but, but, but have you ever wondered what that meant? I am who I am. Who, how many of you grew up in Sunday school and then you read that passage and you're like, that doesn't tell me anything. I am who I am. I, I, grew, up in, uh, I grew up in Roman Catholic Sunday school. I have always wondered, like, what does that even mean? I am who I am. Like God is circular, right? There's, God is reflexive. He's, all he's saying to Moses is, I am who I am. He doesn't say anything except for the fact that he is who he is. He is defined by himself, okay? And then say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Okay? Here's what the simplicity of God, this is one of the texts that talk about the simplicity of God, I would argue, okay? The reason why he's saying I am who I am, notice, is because everything that is in God is God. Notice when I talk about all the attributes of God just now, all the attributes are so tightly connected to one another that it's really just one thing, you see? So in a sense, when you talk about God's eternality and then you make a distinction between his eternality and his simplicity, you're really talking about one thing, right? God, you're, you're really explaining eternality in terms of simplicity, but simplicity presupposes eternality in the other. See, there's a circularity to that, okay? But not only that, that means that everything that, that God is, is in God, and everything that is in God is God in such a way where he is self-defining. He's self-defining, okay? We are not self-defining. Everything that we do, everything that we are, is relative. In other words, in distinction with someone else, okay? Let me, let me slow down again here. If I say, Ferdy is good, how do you know he's good? Here's one way you can know he's good, okay? Um, you look at Ferdy, then you look at Tazar, and then you say, obviously Ferdy is good, better than Tazar. Uh, that's one way, okay? You make a relative distinction. I'm not saying that's a real claim. I'm saying that's one way you could do it, okay? Okay, if that's not obvious to you because Tazar is a saint, then, <laughs> then, then maybe we could, we could compare Ferdy with, let's say, I don't know, um, Adolf Hitler, okay? Then you can say, Ferdy is good. How do you know he's good? Well, he's not Hitler, which isn't a high bar <laughs> of goodness, right? So notice what you're doing there. You're defining Ferdy's goodness relatively to someone else. You're comparing, in other words, and we human beings do that, and sometimes, a lot of times, out of sin. You walk into a room, and everybody does it. You're sizing each other up, you know? You're, you're, you're comparing yourself to other people. In other words, you are always constantly defining yourself in relation to something else, right? You're relative, so you're not circular. Notice when I say Ferdy is good, 
I have to explain that in terms of some other thing. I'm defining Ferdy by comparison to another standard. You notice that? By comparison to another standard. Now, what if I said to you, Ferdy is good because he's goodness himself? You're laughing at that because that's improper to a human being, right? You notice, but, but in, in a way, that is an explanation. Like, Ferdy is good, if, if, if he's goodness himself, Ferdy is good because he's goodness himself, that means he himself is the ultimate definition, the ultimate standard of goodness, the ultimate exemplification, manifestation of goodness, right? And if he's the ultimate, what else could he refer to other than himself? You see? He himself has to be that by which he is defined. He is goodness because he's goodness. You notice that? Suddenly it makes sense, right? Okay, I've used this analogy multiple times, and I'm trying to expand my analogies because I've used the ruler analogy multiple times, okay? But since some of you are new, please sustain this with me. Others of you have heard the ruler analogy a lot, but let me, let me just use this analogy again, okay? This is, this is, because this is absolutely key. And if you, if you get this about God, suddenly a lot, the implications are so many that you're going to be at rest a little bit more, Okay. The Ferdi analogy is one example. Now, let's, let's take another example of the ruler, okay? How many of you guys heard this example before, the ruler? Okay, three, three four of you. Okay, so some of you have not or, or have forgotten about it. That's okay. Okay, think, think about a ruler. So there's, let's say there's a meter-long ruler here, okay? Now, how do you know this, lo- this meter-long ruler is a meter-long? What's one way you can know? not a trick question it's okay you can by comparing to another ruler exactly so here's a metal one meter long ruler and then you're really wondering because you're an anxious type of person and you go next door and then you find another meter long ruler right and then you're like ha this really is a meter long ruler because they're identical with this ruler you see that that's how you know that it's a meter long ruler because you're comparing it in relation to another ruler you notice that right but then one of you is really OCD right and one of you is like, how do you know that these two rulers that are side by side next door to each other just happen to be like a misfire from one factory? And only these two rulers are mistakes. It's, they're imperfect, and they don't represent the meter-long ruler. So one of you is a billionaire, and you gather all the rulers in Jakarta, Indonesia. And you, you, you post them all in this room. And then you start, you get a bunch of people to, to, to rule all of the other rulers. And you, you try to compare them one another. And then what do you find? Lo and behold, some rulers are a little bit shorter than the other, like by a millimeter. And others are a little bit longer by a couple centimeters, right? Notice. But then how do you know that the properly meter-long ruler is actually the minority and not the majority? How do you know? You don't, right? You could keep comparing. It's an infinite regress. You have to keep going and going and going and going until, what do you need? You need an ultimate ruler, right? You need a ruler that defines all other rulers. You need a ruler that says, I know this is a meter-long ruler because this is the first, maybe, the first ruler by the inventor. This is the ultimate ruler that defines all other rulers, such that when you ask, how do you know that ruler is a meter-long, what do you say? It's a meter-long because it is the meter-long. You notice the circularity of that? 
as the ruler that rules all other rulers, okay? And then suddenly, his, the name of God starts to make sense. Because Ferdi can't say, he's good because he's goodness himself. I am goodness exemplified. If any human being says that, he's an egomaniac, right? But if God says it, I am good because I am good. I am good because I am goodness. Notice it starts to make sense because now all goodness is in relation to God. All goodness is measured by God's goodness. And if you're, if you're in apologetics class, uh, almost last year, the beginning of this year, right? Remember, this has a lot of implications when you're engaging unbelievers. Because most of the time when unbelievers say, I don't believe that God is a good God, what do they say? Uh, well, you know, a good God wouldn't create a hell, right? A good God wouldn't condemn people. A good God wouldn't punish people, right? What are they doing? They're, co- they're actually comparing God to themselves. They're, they're actually saying, if I were God, or I consider myself a pretty good person, I wouldn't punish people. God punishes people, so God isn't good. So they're assuming a different definition of goodness than God himself, and they're actually using that external definition, and sometimes those definitions come from what they think themselves. They're using themselves as a standard, and using that standard against God. But if simplicity of God is true, their argument is no longer coherent. Because God's goodness doesn't depend ultimately upon what you think, right? God's goodness is himself goodness. And not only that, we're going to see God's goodness is entirely ad intra. Such that his goodness was already self-defined and self-contained before creation, such that whatever he does ad extra doesn't implicate who he is ad intra. That's why we always have to keep these two levels of being in mind. What he does ad extra doesn't implicate who, who he is ad intra. Okay? So he himself does what he does. So notice Exodus thirty-three nineteen Expands on that name of God, I am who I am. Not only he is the ultimate simple, he is who he is, right? Notice the circularity of simplicity. He's not without... There's no divisions in him. There's no parts in him, no composition. He's fully one. So he's self-defining. When you talk about God, you're really just talking about one ultimate thing, right? Substance. He's also self-acting. Look at what it says in Exodus 33, 19. He says, the Lord said, sorry, there should be the Lord said, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will have mercy on whom I will show mercy. You notice that? Notice the circularity again. Let me count there for just one more minute. So notice the circularity of that. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Okay? What context is God say, is saying this in? Exodus 33 is not only an expansion of the name of God in Exodus 3, but if you remember what happened in Exodus 32 and 31. Remember, God's people, Israel, were just taken out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They were in the wilderness, about to go to the promised land, Cana, right? What did they do in Exodus 31 and 32 instead of thanking God? They grumbled against him, and what did they do? They made a golden calf. Remember that? And they worshipped the golden calf instead of God. 
they thanked the golden calf instead of God because they wanted something tangible, controllable, visible, right? And then Moses freaks out. He sees this. He freaks out. He goes back to God, intercedes for the people of God. And Moses says, Lord, I am afraid. I'm paraphrasing. I'm afraid that you're going to leave us. You rescued us from Egypt. And here we are, like literally a few days later, bowing down to another God and thanking another God. And we've forgotten you. Are you going to leave us? They've basically cheated on him, right? That's what the people of God have done. And then God says he'll stay. Why? Because I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What is he saying there? He's saying, I'll stay with you because the reason why I chose you or the reason why I was gracious to you to begin with was not because you were faithful to me to begin with. He didn't say, I'll be gracious to who is faithful or I will be merciful to those who are better than Egypt, for example, right? He simply is saying, I chose you simply because I chose you. I had the absolute freedom to do so. Nothing outside of me defines me, and therefore nothing outside of me, ad extra, controls what I do. He is not a, reflex, he's not a reflexive God. He's not a, a God who re- reflexively reacts. He's not a reactionary God, okay? And that should be the greatest source of comfort for you, just as a pastoral aside. I've used this joke before, but it's, it's, it's a joke that's worth using again, okay? If you're dating someone, you're married to someone, okay? You're going to have one of those moments, probably on the phone or on the couch or on the, on the, on the bed or whatever, right? Where your loved one is going to say to you, honey, why do you love me? Okay? And... If you're smart, <laughs> if you're smart, right, most of the time you have to say great things about this person. You've, you've been faithful to me. You're beautiful. Some of you might even say you give me a lot of money. I don't know, right? <laughs> Whatever it might be. But notice you're, you're saying things about that person that make you love that person, right? But if, this, if your beloved is really, really smart, that's going to start to freak him or her out. Why? Because if you can't compliment them on your looks, you're going to start to have this doubt. Well, what if I'm 60 and wrinkly? Are you still going to love me? If you compliment them by their riches, you're going to start to have the doubt. Well, if I were poor, are you going to leave me? If you start to say they're faithful, well, what if one day I sinned and, you know, I was not, not faithful? Are you going to leave me? In other words, everything that you say about this person are contingent things, right? And then that actually creates demands rather than affirms. Actually, the only securing thing is if you say, honey, why do you love me? The only securing response is to say, I love you because I love you. I unconditionally love you, irrespective of all those reasons. These are good things. Sure, I'm thankful for that. But irrespective of any of that, I love you because I love you. Notice that, right? That shouldn't be the first thing you say because that's going to create eruptions of problems. Like, you know, like, why do you love me? I love you because I love you. That doesn't tell me anything, babe. Like, that shouldn't be the first thing you say. But you should affirm the person and then go to the circular argument, okay? But, all the joking aside, but that, that shows something. What is God saying here? Israel, or my people, I'm not going to love you because I never chose you because you were any better in the first place. I chose you because I chose you. I was gracious to you because I freely chose to be gracious to you. Nothing outside of me had constrained what I chose to do in the first place. And so nothing outside of me can change my mind. 
You notice that? Okay. Let's take a break. How you guys doing? All right. Let's take a, let's take a quick break. Yeah. Ad intra. Ad intra. It's self-contained. Yep. Let me just continue a little bit more on simplicity. I hope you're getting a little bit of a clearer picture. Simplicity has a whole host of implications that we saw, right? Um, there's notice when we make distinctions in God, therefore, we're not dividing parts of him, right? We've, we've, we've talked a lot about that. All of the attributes of God ultimately are connected, especially the attributes of God in his essence, in his substance, so to speak, right? All of the attributes of God are really one thing. And um, they're all so connected to one another that when you talk about one, you always have to talk about all the other ones, right? You notice that. And therefore, he's self-acting. Um, that means everything that he does is self-contained within him. He freely does all that he does. Nothing outside of him constrains what he does. And he's also self-defining, right? He is the standard of everything because he is the ultimate. He is um, and at, at the level of ultimacy, of ultimate being. Um, you're necessarily going to have to be circular. Now, again, just to be clear, remember in the first session, we talked about the retrieval project. Again, we're, we're doing all these things. We're taking back all these terms, retrieving all these terms, because they've been around for the church for a long time. And I just want to prove that a little bit more to you, that the simplicity of God is not just something we're making up. Okay? It's not just from the biblical texts that we saw of the oneness of God of Exodus 3 and 33, um, but it's also testified to in all of church history. And the Westminster Confession of Faith, where um, if you're an, an office holder in CCC, if you're an elder here or a deacon one day, you have to believe and uphold everything the Westminster Confession of Faith says. We talked about what that was briefly last week. Notice what the Westminster Confession of Faith says here in chapter 2. Chapter was, 1 was on scripture. Chapter 2 is on the doctrine of God. And chapter 2, article 1 says this. There's but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection and most pure spirit, invisible, without, notice this, without body, without physical parts, in other words, without parts or passions. Um, passions are, are something that human beings undergo. In other words, it's a, passions just, just refers to the, the ancient sense of passion is you're a patient. A patient means that you're passive to something, and some, you're reactive to something, right? Um, the analogy, if you're, if you're a hospital patient, you're passive. You're receiving medication, you're receiving care, right? If you are uh, passionate, it's, something, it's because something outside of you compels something within you and causes you to have passion, uncontrollable. You see, God doesn't have uncontrollable passions Nothing outside of him causes him to do something. He's not passive. That's also another word underlying passion there, okay? So he's, he's never, he's pure act, in other words. He is always uh, in control of everything and always active. And notice there, the, the language of simplicity doesn't fully show up, but notice it says without body or parts, all right? infinite in being and perfection, most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, and immutable, not changeable in other words, immense, not contained in space or time, eternal, no beginning, no ending, incomprehensible, 
ultimately mysterious to us. Almighty, which means capable of everything. Most wise, means he has all the knowledge. Most holy, which means he's utterly distinct or set apart. Most free, because he's not constrained by anything outside of himself. And most absolute, which means he's the, the standard of everything. He's the absolute. He's the self-defining standard of everything. So that's Westminster Confession of Faith. Notice the compact, dense definition of who God is right there, right? All of those attributes are really tightly connected to one another. We've talked about all of those attributes in one way or another so far. That's 17th century. 1689, right? That's the Westminster Confession of Faith. Sorry, 1646. Um, Now, that's 17th century. Let's go back 12th century. And we hear a theologian say this, Thomas Aquinas, who's probably one of the most articulate defenders of God's simplicity, says, all the perfections of God are really one thing. So again, we're retrieving things that are taken for granted by the early church, by the Westminster Confession of Faith. And then recall Herman Boving's quote from last week. I began with this quote last week, and we're, we're going to come back to it now. Notice, he says this right, right below Aquinas. Augustine again and again reverted to the simplicity of God. God, said he, is pure essence without accidents. Notice, what, remember last week we talked about what accidents mean. Nothing is non-essential in God. Nothing is contingent in God. Nothing is not essential to who he is. Accidental just not means a car accident. It means something that isn't essentially you. In everything, in God, everything is one. God is everything he possesses. He is his own wisdom. So how do you know his will? He's wise. He appeals to himself. His own life, being and living coincide in him. He necessarily exists, in other words. After Augustine, again, fourth century, we find this teaching in John of Damascus, in the work of the scholastics, and further in the thought of all Roman Catholic, Lutheran, and Reformed theologians. We discussed this last week. He goes on after that. This was not from last week. He says, hence, in that respect, aseity, and this is a new word, okay? Aseity is a correlation of God's simplicity. God is essentially ase, or or he enjoys the attribute of divine aseity. Let me just talk about what that means. He says this, in that respect, aseity may be called the primary attribute of God's being. We can't even say on the basis of God's revelation, not by means of a priori reasoning. And that just means on the basis of scripture, not on the basis of just our own speculations. That along with his aseity, all those attributes have to be present in God that nature and scripture make known to us. If God is God, the only eternal and absolute being, this implies that he possesses all the perfections. As one who exists of and through and unto himself, he is the fullness of being, the independent and supremely perfect being. Asidi, therefore, does not just refer to his absoluteness, but also his independence. Asidi means independence. It comes from the Latin term ase, which just simply means from himself. He's independent of anything outside of himself. Therefore, he is everything from himself. He is himself everything that he is. That's the aseity of God. He's absolutely independent. 
And this is not trivial. We're going to get to the implications of this, which is astounding. So Bavink sums up again after he talks about God's aseity, which means he's noticed the last clause of that second quote by Bavink, independent and supremely perfect being. That's aseity. He's from himself, supremely perfect and independent. God is absolute unity and simplicity. Without composition or division, that unity is essential to the divine being. Aseity refers to independence. And notice we've already actually talked about that. He is independent in his being and character. You don't compare God with anything outside of himself the way we do. With, we, we know we're good by comparing to something outside of himself, by comparing us to something other than ourselves. But he is, God refers simply to himself to define his being and character. He is who he is. But he's also independent in terms of his knowledge and his will. And we're going to get to knowledge and will very soon because these two things are actually in God because they're one, right? If everything in God is one, his knowledge and his will is also actually one thing. And we're going to get to that. That's where we're going. But we're just one more summary statement of God's simplicity and aseity from Christopher Holmes, which is a contemporary author. He says this, God is undivided and not composite which points to what is true in a positive sense, namely, that God is one and complete. Complete is independent, right? He doesn't need anything. None of God's essential, or for that matter, personal names are accidental to God. And God is not ordered to anything outside God. That last clause of God is not ordered to anything outside God is simply reiterating what I exemplify with regard to creatures and, you know, Ferdy, right? We are ordered to things outside of us. Things outside of us define us. Things outside of us control us. But not so with God. He is self-ordering, self-defining. He defines himself not in relation to anything outside of him. Now. Last questions on that before we move on. Okay, let's keep going. Now, therefore, let me touch on again, before, before we get to God's knowledge and will, this is where we're going for the rest of the cohort and also the last week of cohort after the retreat. And as we talk about Arminianism there, we need to talk about our talk about God. In other words, you've noticed in the first hour of our time together today, right, that when we talk about God, the things we say about God don't entirely match who he is. So when we say God is omnipresent, God is eternal, God is infinite, we're making distinctions, right? So we have to first talk about infinity, and then we talk about eternality, and then we talk about omniscience or whatever kind of attribute of God. You notice that? Because we are creatures. Remember I said that? Because we're creatures, we have to talk about God as if these things are divisions in God, as if these things are distinct in God. You see that? We have to talk about God's holiness and then we talk about God's goodness, as if holiness and his goodness are distinct. We have to talk about God's knowledge and then we have to talk about God's will, as if his knowledge and his will are distinct. But given simplicity, right? These things are not actually different things in God. He really is actually one God. So our talk of God 
and who God is in and of himself are actually quite different, right? Because we are creatures, we have to talk about him in a way that makes distinctions, in a way that is, in a sense, dividing him, in a way that doesn't match who he really is because he's one thing. But we as creatures are discursive beings. We reason from one thing to another. We make inferences. We have to reason step by step. I can't know uh, Chen in one step, right? I can't just look and, and then see her and then know everything about her in one simple intuitive moment, right? I have to make inferences. I have to sleep. And then the next day, I get to know Chen again better. You see you know what I mean? Creatures, in other words, have to reason from one thing to another, making distinctions from one step to another, and we grow in our understanding. We don't know things intuitively, we know things discursively, as the old theologian said. We know things step by step, we don't know things in one moment. Which, by the way, is another distinction between us and God, because God knows things in one moment, because God is one. God is simple, and we're, we're going to get to that soon. But I just want us to notice and retrieve this understanding of how your talk about God relates with God. It is every theologian in any historic Christian tradition has always said that God is God's knowledge in us is analogical to who he is. We know him analogically and not univocally or equivocally. What do I mean by that? Notice that when we start to know God, right, because he first revealed himself to us, we, we have to reason and we have to know things the way we know it. So there's a mode of signifying. That is proper to creatures that we, we have to talk about God in a certain way. We know in a certain mode, we know in a creaturely way, and so we talk about God, all right? That's our mode of signifying, that's how we talk about God. That's the modus significandi. Again, I'm retrieving these terms so that, again, we, it becomes common jargon to us. But notice the old theologian said, our mode of signifying God is pretty different from the thing signified. And that language of sign and things signified, right? What do signs do? They point to something, right? If you look at a map of Nebraska, I don't know why I use Nebraska. If you look at a map of Nebraska, it points to the geography of Nebraska and the real place Nebraska, right? But notice the map and the real thing are not the same. The mode of signification, the map, how you're trying to signify things in Nebraska it's very different from when you actually end up in Nebraska. The picture and the thing are very different, right? When you take a look at a photograph, which is a mode of signifying, it's two-dimensional, and the thing signified by the photograph, namely you, you're very different. A photograph has no feelings, no emotions, it's two-dimensional, you are three-dimensional, but a photograph still conveys something about you, right? It, it still tells us something about you. But, but what the old theologians is saying is, your way of talking about God and God himself are quite different, such that there is a proper discontinuity or disjunction 
between the mode of signifying and the thing signified. So you don't know him in a one-to-one -one correspondence. Your language about God doesn't actually match in exactly the same way who he is, all right? So even when you talk about, for example, if you use the word or the sign, God's eternality, try to picture eternality in your head. Suddenly pictures of like interstellar comes to your head, right? Or something like you have an infinite extension of time in the past and then go all the way to the future, right? And then you see kind of a point of horizon. You notice that? When you picture eternality, you always think of horizons of time. Why? Because you are a space-time bound creature. And then that is a picture of eternality to you because that's your mode as a creature. You can't think of eternality in any other way. You notice that? God's eternality, however, transcends that, right? God is not just extended in time forever to the past and forever to the future because time had a beginning and time will have an end, so to speak. God transcends time, such as his eternality means he's not just eternal with respect to time, but also timeless. But you can't grasp what that looks like or what that means. It's, it's kind of mysterious to you. You notice that? So even when you talk about eternality and you're referring to God's being ad intra, there's a sense in which your talk and imagination of the word eternality, the mode of signifying, does not match with the thing signified, the real eternality of God, right? There's, there's, there's correspondence, there's analogy, notice that, between eternality and, and, and God's, but not identity or it's not univocal. Univocal just means there's a one-to-one -one correspondence, so one-to-one -one correlation. And that has a lot of implications. Here's one implication, okay? If God is analogically known by you and not univocally, okay? So when you talk about God, he somehow still transcends that. And the only way you can talk about God if it's analogical is if he first stoops down to reveal himself to you. Notice that. He takes up creaturely terms, creaturely words, opens himself up in a book, scripture, and in a person, Jesus Christ, with a human body. Without scripture and Christ, you would have never known God. You notice that? He has to initiate freely to reveal himself to you. And then even that accommodation to your creaturely mode of knowing and signifying doesn't completely map onto who he is, right? That's, a, that's the picture of the analogical mode of knowing. You know by analogy. You don't know by identity. But if you believe that you know God univocally and not analogically, technically, God doesn't have to reveal himself to you. Because God will be in the same sphere of being as you. If this is the picture of what an analogical reasoning is, this is Christian orthodoxy. Univocal reasoning assumes that here is God and here is you. And you're in the same sphere of reasoning. Same sphere of being. 
God, therefore, is just a higher version of yourself. It's not as if God had to stoop down. You could know God even apart from the Bible, in other words. Because God is just a higher extension of yourself. And actually, functionally, a lot of your non-Christian friends, and even sometimes you, function this way. Without even actually knowing the Bible, people make a lot of assumptions about God. People assume that they know God. Behind that is really an understanding of a one level of being where God is just a higher version of yourself. And so you can know God simply by consulting your own intuitions. Okay? And this is not Christian orthodoxy. Christian orthodoxy says you could only know God by scripture and Christ, like truly know God. Pause, any, any questions there? Ronald. And Christ, yeah. Yeah, well, Scripture presupposes God condescending to speak to Moses first, right? And God condescending with Adam and Eve as well. So what I meant by Scripture is not just the book, but also the things recorded by Scripture. Yeah, sorry. Thanks for clarifying that. I touched on that last week, right? I remember kind of humorously that God doesn't speak in Hebrew or Greek or in English. In the eternal Godhead, there was no language because language presupposes temporality and communication and time. Um, the fact that God reveals himself in human language is itself astounding. But notice, therefore, that analogy um, is not just not univocal or identity. Analogical knowledge, this, this view, right? Let me just write that there, an analogical. is also not um, equivocal. So notice in your notes there, it says it's not equivocal. Equivocal means that two things have nothing in common, that you can't know something. So if analogy is that middle way, equivocal reasoning imagines two circles where God is there and you're here, but nothing you do can ever know God. There's just a, a, there's just a barrier that is strong. There's a division. Notice the division sign. Ha ha. Okay. That's anyway. Um, there's a division between you and God so strong the division is that nothing you say about God actually maps onto who he is. This is equivocal reasoning. If you're equivocating between two words, it means you're using the word differently, right? One example of this, if I say um, 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 Karen passed the bar, Karen passed the bar, right? And then uh, Jason is like, Karen passed the bar, and he infers Karen passed the bar, the Dutch, right there, right? There's a bar called the Dutch or Karen passed a bar, right? In other words, she drove past a bar, like literally a drinking bar, okay? And then, so notice, contextually, that might make sense if Karen actually did pass the bar, right? But then, uh, Nanis hears that Karen passed the bar, and without any context, assumes, oh, what kind of, pa what kind of test was she passing? She passed the bar. In other words, she passed the, the failing bar. So she passed, right? 
So notice bar there is used equivocally. One bar, the same word, used equivocally. Bar could refer to the drinking bar or bar could refer to a, a test. You have to pass the bar to pass the test, to pass the class, right? That's equivocal. That's, that, that's, what equivoca that's what equivocation means, right? So you have to be precise in your language and context will tell you how specific words are used in a specific way, right? Now, in equivocal reasoning, people would argue that therefore you should not do any theology because you can't really know God anyway. Maybe you could feel him, maybe you could, you know, but any talk about God, you're putting God in a box. You heard that before? Equivocation, in other words, equivocal theology, ends up with a kind of mysticism where the best way to have a relationship with God is not to talk about him. He's, he's, he becomes this kind of inexplicable feeling. Language doesn't match who he is at all, so don't use language. Doctrine becomes a barrier to have a relationship with God because you're limiting God. God can't be contained by human language, you see. Now, technically, isn't that true? God can't be contained by human language? It's, it's, you can affirm that, you see, in analogical reasoning. We affirm there's mystery in God. But it's not univocal and it's not equivocal. That means we don't end up in rationalism on the one hand. You can just know God and it's one-to-one -one correspondence and God is just a higher version of yourself. You don't need the Bible. But you also don't end up in mysticism where you say, I don't need to talk about God at all because I can't know God anyway. God is so much higher that there's, there's no reason to talk about him. Does that make sense? Okay. How are you guys doing? Now, therefore, we're going to get to God's knowledge now, I promise. But, but uh, like in the last five minutes, which teases next week, okay? So, so no, notice here what Christopher Holmes continues to say about analogical reasoning. And he's talking about the attribute of goodness here. Creatures, by virtue of their being, by virtue of their participation in the pure act of existence itself, God, are good. What exists is good. Think about this level, okay? What exists is good. Creatures are good. Goodness, humanly speaking, and goodness, divinely speaking, are, however, infinitely distinct. So there's a goodness with reference to the creature. There's goodness with reference to the creator. They're analogically related. You notice that? Infinitely distinct. The former, or creaturely goodness, is derivative, mixed, and composite. In other words, it's made of parts. And finite. Whereas the latter is original, pure, simple, and infinite. God is perfect in the good, perfect goodness. And analogical speech is better suited than other forms of speech in describing this goodness. In other words, when we discuss goodness analogically, we attribute it to God in a radically purified sense. The problem with univocal discourse, right, is that it assumes, sorry, it, the problem with univocal discourse is that it assumes a one-to-one -one correspondence. With equivocal discourse, that it assumes no correspondence. Analogical speech does denote some similarity, yes, between God's uncreated goodness and created goodness, 
only because God wills that his creatures share in what is his. Notice that. Only because God condescends. That's the accommodation he's talking about there. Only because God wills that his creatures share in what is his. It's a covenantal relation. Covenantal just means God initiates something, a promise, a word, to relate with his creatures. Only because God wills to share what is his. Analogical speech is better suited than other forms in describing this dynamic. It denotes a mode of signifying that is utterly transcended by the purity of what is signified. You see that? Christopher Holmes just summed up what I talked about in the last 40 minutes in one paragraph. So you want to review? That's the quotation you review. And the quote right below that by Van Til is simply a repetition of Holmes, but in a different way. Okay, so two ways of saying the same thing. I try to think God's thoughts after him. So notice when he says, I try to think God's thoughts after him, he's distinguishing his thoughts from God's, right? I try to think God's thoughts after him. There's an analogical relationship. That is to say, I try as a redeemed covenant creature of the triune God to attain as much coherence as I, being finite and sinful, can. Finitude and sinfulness limits your knowledge of God. Between the facts of the universe, God's revelation is clear, but it is clear just because it is God's revelation and God is self-contained light. My system or my theology, you could say that way, my theology is therefore an analogical reinterpretation of the truth that God has revealed about himself and his relation to man through Christ and scripture. I construct my quote-unquote system by means of a variety of gifts that God has created within me. Among these gifts is that of concept formation. So notice what Van Til is saying here is that there is, again, your mode of signifying God, so your knowledge about God, which tries to replicate God's knowledge of himself. Like I'm, I'm drawing this for the sake of argument, right? There's, not, there's no parts of God. But somehow we know God in a way that, that matches God's revelation of who he is, and it's clear because it's God who makes it clear. But it, it, there's still an infinite amount of distance between God and us, okay? So that... Van Til says, our knowledge of God is a reinterpretation of God's knowledge of himself. Which is, again, an, an, an analogy, right? If I'm interpreting something, my interpretation is always something less than the real thing, right? If I'm interpreting Shakespeare for you, if you don't read Shakespeare for yourself, you don't know if my interpretation is right or not. My interpretation is always something subordinate to, but reflective of, the thing in itself, right? In the same way, Van Til is saying our system or our theology is reinterpretive and analogical and not something that is univocal. But, but, but notice God therefore chooses, and this is again analogical, analogical speech, okay? God chooses to freely decide what information to give to us. Out of his absolute and infinite knowledge, he chooses a portion of it and reveals that to us, right? So notice this is where his will and his knowledge begin to coincide. Because he wills to give us a certain kind of knowledge. We'll get there again soon. That's where we're going next week. Okay, let me end with 
two example, two two very quick and concrete examples of analogy, okay? And then you, you're, you're going to start to see, hopefully, some of the huge implications of this. Think about presence. So we talk about eternality as one example, but think about God's presence, for example, for a moment here. God's presence is not our presence, but analogous to our presence, right? That's how analogies work. There's continuity and discontinuity. God's presence is not our presence, okay? Now, therefore, when Patrick is sitting there, and if I tackle him and I try to sit on that chair, I have to remove Patrick from the chair so that I could sit on the chair, right? Why? Because my presence and Patrick's presence is univocal. It's a creature-to-creature presence. You notice that? It's univocal. Univocal presence compete with one another, you see, such that I have to remove Patrick from the chair for me to sit in that same chair. I can't be in the same space as Patrick, you see, because there's a univocal understanding of space and time and, and, and presence, right? But notice, when you think about the presence of God, how many of you believe that God is present everywhere? I mean, all of us, right? I hope, right? That's not controversial to anyone. Everybody who's Christian affirms that God is present everywhere. But simply by affirming that, you notice that you're already talking analogically. Because if God is present everywhere, how come everything isn't pushed out of existence, so to speak, right? Because when you're talking about omnipresence, and then you, you say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, God's presence is not entirely like ours, but he really is present, such that you can say, no matter where you are, he's with you, right? So notice, if God's presence is not the same with your presence, it doesn't compete with your presence. God doesn't have to remove Patrick from the chair so that a part of God could sit there. You notice that? Because it's analogical to his presence, it doesn't compete with his presence. It's a spiritual presence, it's a divine presence, so it doesn't compete or eliminate your presence. Because it's not univocal, you see. Now, that's not, that's not the punchline, <laughs> okay? How many of you heard the objection, if God controls everything, then we have no responsibility? Have you heard that objection? If God controls everything, if God causes everything, then we are just cogs in a machine. We're just robots. How many of you heard of that objection? Okay. Why does that objection make sense to you? It makes sense initially because you're assuming a univocal understanding of God's control and God's cause. If I control Emily, right, and I cause her to do a crime by inserting a microchip in her or I, I, I coerce her, right, I'm responsible. I'm to blame. Emily becomes a cog in the machine, right? And that's terrible. Why? Because my causation and Emily's causation or my control and Emily's control are what? Univocal. They're conflicting with one another. You see that? Just as my presence and Patrick's presence would have conflicted with another because we have a univocal understanding of presence. You see? So control in the creature and creaturely relation is univocal such that if I control Emily, it conflicts with her control. You see that? I hope you see that, okay? 
But if God's control and God's causation is only analogically related and not univocally related, he has the unique ability to cause something or to cause someone, like Judas, let's say, or to control someone without conflicting with their control. You see that? Just as God's presence doesn't conflict with your presence, his control doesn't conflict with your control. His causation doesn't conflict with your causation. Why? Because it's a different kind of causation. It's analogical, but different. You see the implications of that? So for the sake of illustrating this, okay, we often imagine God's control is like creaturely control. So we have, you know, creatures here. So if we cause one another, we create a kind of domino effect and we cancel out each other. You see, this is, this is in the creaturely mode of being and this is the, just resembling human persons, okay? You notice that? What if, and that's creaturely causation, this is in your notes, creaturely causation. Bottom of page two. What if God has a unique kind of divine control and divine causation that is analogically related to ours and so he can control everything that happens. I wish I had like a green marker or something to, to show the difference, right? That at the same time does not conflict with the chain of events in creation. See, the objection, if God is in control, then we become robots, assumes a univocal understanding of God-world relation. Not an analogical one. But notice, if what I'm saying has been true, this understanding has been assumed by all of Christian orthodoxy. Okay, let me close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for uh, this time together. We pray, Lord God, that we would understand you so that we may grow wise, so we become humble, so that we can be in awe of your transcendence. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.